The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good to be here, and thank you for having me, and uh, good to see some of some of my old friends, Michael and Rocky and Franny and Steve and new friends, Jim, and, and uh, I, I've seen Luke out there. Look at Ethan, how big he got, my goodness, and Rocky's sitting there telling me, I remember you were at my wedding, I remember that too, Sandcastle, and uh, I remember the thunder and lightning when you said I do. It's been thunder and lightning ever since, huh, Franny? Uh, so what a blessing to be here. And uh, Caleb is up in grace and truth today. I'm thankful for that. I, I know I could trust him in the pulpit. And you certainly are blessed um, in having Caleb Bunch to lead this church and, and uh, seeing Ashley out there. Where did Ashley go? She went downstairs. And uh, also gracious friends over the years. So it's a blessing to be out here. And... Um, and, uh, and to be part of your worship service today. Um, thank you for having me. So our text today is going to be Genesis 28, which was already read, so there's no point in me rereading it. Um, what is the focus of our passage today? It's the focus of Jacob, or particularly, I would say, Jacob's conversion. Now, some would debate, was Jacob truly converted here? Was it later when he returned to Canaan and wrestled with God and was renamed Israel? There's nuances there. I think that this is a progress um, in Jacob's spiritual journey. I believe that prior to the event that is described here in Genesis 28, Jacob is an unconverted man. He's not saved. And so today we're going to be looking at what this major transformative event that took place in Jacob's life to make him the man that he would later become the patriarch and the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. But before we begin, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you once again for this opportunity. You have afforded a poor, wretched sinner like myself to stand at the sacred desk and to speak forth your word. Lord, we all sit here as sinners needy, hungry, thirsting for righteousness, and we look to you, Lord, to feed us. Oh, Holy Spirit, fill us, fill us today, with, with a sense of your presence, instruct us in your word and illuminate the passage before us. And I pray, Lord, that when we leave here today, we would not be the same from when we came in. I pray, Lord, that you would use this to correct us, to conform us to the image of your beloved Son. Father, I ask you, O Lord, give me your Holy Spirit. Anoint my mind, my heart, my lips. Carry me along as I speak. Obscure me, and may you have all the preeminence in Christ's name. Amen. Do you remember when you were saved? There are certain events we remember, right? I mean, everybody remembers where they were at September 11, 2001, right? And you remember the day of your conversion, your new birth, when you came to know Christ. It's one of the greatest events in your life if you're a Christian, isn't it? It's like having your first baby. It's when you got married. It's just one of those one of those events that you just never forget. And how could you forget it? 
The day you knew that your sins were forgiven. The day you knew that God was real and he made himself real to you. And his presence was made known to you. And you believed. And the burden rolled off your shoulders and you became saved. I remember that event very clearly. It was the greatest day of my life. And it should be the greatest day of your life too. But sometimes that road's a little bumpy on the way, right? You get saved and you come to know the Lord and you're not automatically transformed into super Christian. And here we are, some of us, 20, 30 years later, and we're still struggling. And we will struggle with sin until the day we go home to be with the Lord and we're glorified. That's just the part of how God does things. We come to faith, we're justified, then we're sanctified, and ultimately we experience glorification when we get to heaven. And today we're looking at this seminal event, the catalyst event of Jacob's conversion. Prior to this point, I think it's safe to say Jacob is not converted. He's not saved. Everything you've probably been hearing in the last previous couple of chapters indicates that, doesn't it? Yeah, he's he's the homebody, and Esau's the big, tough, brawny guy, man's man. You know, he's the firstborn. He's in line. His father loves him. catches game and feeds his father great stew and and his father has a taste for that you know you can just see the pride that isaac has in esau jacob's more of a mama's boy isn't he stays home and cooks and makes lentil stew and watches the sheep who, who sees this guy being the patriarch but if you remember correctly it was god's ordained plan that jacob was to be the patriarch God had revealed that to Rebecca when she was pregnant. The older shall serve the younger. God, again, as he does throughout the Old Testament, reverses the traditions of men. It's not the older first and then the younger. No, God God seems to always choose the younger, and that'll happen even with Jacob's son. So we'll see that that Joseph will, will have the preeminence, although he's not the firstborn, and although he will not become the leader of the tribes, Judah will, We see that there's a preeminence there on Joseph. And this is a theme that goes throughout. David, this is God's way. God doesn't doesn't conform himself to our standards and our traditions. We conform ourselves to him. And so when you look at what leads up to chapter 28, we know the whole upheaval, we know the whole scandal, him deceiving his father, his mother aiding him and abetting him. Ultimately, Esau's find out, and he's enraged. He wants to murder Jacob. Now, put yourself in his shoes. You'd probably want to murder him, too. A scoundrel, a lying cheat. That's precisely what Jacob is. He's a lying cheat. He's a scoundrel. He's self-willed. His name fits him, as Esau will say. Usurper. And here we see the tragic and awful effects that sin has on Isaac's family. The family is utterly torn apart by lack of faith on Isaac's part, disobedience on Rebecca's part, scheming, cheating, and intrigue by both Rebecca and Isaac. You have Esau who has his birthright and despised it for a dish of lentil stew. It is a family torn apart, and that's what sin does. Sin tears families apart. When we give sin in our lives the place, it destroys our family, destroys our churches. What a sad testimony to the patriarchal family 
In fact, you'd wonder why this is even recorded in Scripture, and it's there for a good reason. It's a reminder that no one is above sin. Those failures, those moral failures of Abraham are there for a reason, to remind us that, that although he is a flawed man, and although Isaac is a flawed man, and although Jacob is a flawed man, God's covenant of decree and his sovereign election stands. And that's the main theme through Genesis, really. That is the main theme. God's sovereign election, his covenant, and his decree. When God makes a plan, he's going to keep it. It doesn't depend on human ability or inability. God doesn't throw away the plan. If if we mess up, God has his plan, and he's going to bring it to fruition in spite of us, not because of us. And so while everybody suffers as a result of this, the focus is on Jacob now. He's a self-willed man. He's unscrupulous. He's a liar. He's a cheat. And he is by no means fit or qualified for being the next patriarch. He is not qualified to carry his father's mantle. He is not qualified to continue the covenant of Abraham. And that is what makes this story so amazing. That is what makes this story so beautiful. Is to see the tremendous grace of God here. Going to the New Testament for a minute, Romans 9, 11 through 13. It was one of those verses that had a radical impact on me and brought me to sovereign grace. In Romans 9, 11 through 13, it says, Though they were not yet born, referring to Jacob and Esau, and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The Apostle Paul later in the New Testament refers to this event, refers to this period in redemption history to explain the doctrine of sovereign grace, to explain the doctrine of God's elective purposes. God chose Jacob, not because Jacob was a good guy. He chose Jacob because he loved him. And the reason why any of us stand here today forgiven, cleansed, with the gift of eternal life, and have a right standing with God, is not because we've done anything to earn it or achieve it, or more pleasing in God's sight than our next-door neighbor. No, we're, we're as scandalous as Jacob. But the reason why we're saved and have received the grace of God in our lives is because God has loved you before the foundations of the world. Think about that. It's unconditional love. It's unconditional election. It's free. God didn't choose us because of who we are. He chooses us in spite of who we are. And that's our story today. Jacob's conversion. Jacob's story is our story because we could relate to him. Well, let's look at the two parallel aspects of Jacob's life today. One is Jacob the fugitive, and two is Jacob the child of God. I want to contrast those two parallels today. And and in the midst of that, we're going to look at the evidence of, of that change, that conversion that took place. Because here's where it begins. Here is that seminal event where Jacob becomes a new creation, where God changes his heart. So first, let's look at Jacob the fugitive. Jacob the fugitive. 
in Genesis 28, 1 through 5, and Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, Bethuel, rather, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Bedanaram, to Laban, to the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now what has prompted all this? Well, Jacob is in big trouble. His brother wants to kill him. He can't stick around town no more. Everybody knows what he did. He's, he's a disgrace. He's an embarrassment to the family. His brother is enraged. And his mother is giving him counsel. You need to get out of here. You need to go to my brother's house and, and, and you need to flee before your brother kills you. But more importantly, there's a, there is a, a very good intention to leave too. Jacob is unmarried yet. His older brother has married many women, Hittite women, women of Canaan. And this was clearly out of line and out of step with God's will for the covenant family. They were to stay pure and stay holy. You know, often through the Old Testament, you see this emphasis on marrying within. Now, this is consanguinity here, something that we obviously don't practice anymore, right? Consanguinity, the marrying of cousins. But there was a very important purpose here, and that was to keep the covenant family pure, undefiled and separate from the Canaanites whom God was separating a people for. God is incubating the covenant family here. And what's Esau doing? He's mingling with all the women. Not only is he mingling with, with Canaanite and Hittite women who are idolaters, but he's multiplying wives, engaging in polygamy, which was common in the day. We'll see Jacob does the same thing. For different reasons, it wasn't, it wasn't even Jacob's intent, but he was deceived and supplanted by Laban. And yet this shows, in spite of Jacob's sin, in spite of his failure, in spite of his duplicity, God is setting him apart. God's sovereignty, once again, is, is at work here. In the midst of Rebekah's scheming, in the midst of Jacob's scheming, Isaac affirms and sees that this is a good thing because if... Jacob is indeed to be the covenant head, then he indeed must stay pure. And so Isaac sends him and blesses him. In Con, in 13, verses 6 through 9, Esau saws it, sees this and he figures, okay, well, I better, I better get my act together. So he, what does he do? He, he goes and marries Ishmaelites. <laughs> figures, uh, well, they're Grandpa Abraham's, uh, uh, you know, my cousins too. Maybe that'll work out clearly doesn't understand the meaning of the covenant, does he? I think you get that from Esau. Esau's a good guy. I think he's the kind of guy you want to hang out with. He's probably the guy you want to have a beer with or or play a, a, a pool with. But he's not the kind of guy you want leading the covenant family. He doesn't get it. What's important to note here is what Isaac says to Jacob. He gives him his blessing. And in giving the blessing, he is recognizing Jacob as a third patriarch in the family. 
And he does this not only by instructing him to keep the covenant line pure, but he pronounces the Abrahamic blessing on him. The land, the seed, a blessing to all nations. This was, this was the blessing that God gave to Abraham. It was the blessing that Abraham passed to Isaac, and it'll be the blessing that Isaac now passes to Jacob. And when Jacob is old and gray, and before he dies, he'll pass that blessing on to his 12 children, 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jacob leaves town. Now I want you to think about this for a moment, because this sets up the meeting at Bethel, or as we'll see in the next few verses. Don't think of this as like, you know, going off to college or something. This is a, this is a big crisis for Jacob. His whole life, he's lived with his father. His father's wealthy, right? Up to this point, you've learned about Isaac. He, he's inherited his father's wealth, Isaac, right? So Isaac is wealthy, from Abraham, and, and he has land all over Canaan, he has sheep, and, he, and he, he grew up a rich boy in a rich home with a mother who doted over him. He never lacked for anything. Whatever he wanted was always at his disposal. He had servants. He had whatever he wanted. And now he has to leave town, a disgraced man, ashamed of what he did, penniless. It's a long journey from Canaan to Haran, which is in Mesopotamia. And he would have to make that journey alone as a fugitive, a wanted man. Esau wants to kill him. He's alone. He's broke. He's disgraced. And the threat of death looms over him. Think of how he must have felt as he left. Would he ever see his parents again? Would he survive the journey? I mean, some of us, when our kids get old, we send them off to college. You worry about them, right? How will they fare? How will they do? You go to college and they dorm and we worry about so many things. Imagine how much Rebecca and Isaac worried about. Here was a man who never was exposed to the world. Now he's out on his own. Imagine the fears he must have felt. Imagine, as he must have been journeying to Haran, he would say to himself, was it worth it? Imagine the regret he felt. All the scheming and lying. I got what I wanted, but was it worth it? Look at where I am now. Isn't that how we feel when we come to Christ? When the weight of conviction comes upon us. Remember those days when you first came to the Lord and you started thinking of all the sins you committed and all the ways you lived and all the times you rebelled and disobeyed and did what you wanted to do? Yeah, you had freedom. You were free in regards to righteousness. You were free in regards to God. But then when you start to see and realize the weight of your sin, it becomes a burden, doesn't it? You start to say, was it all worth it? You see, God was bringing Jacob to a low place. And before we can come to faith in Christ, before we can be converted, I believe God has to bring us to a low place. We have to be broken. We have to be humbled. And some of us, those crises are bigger than others. Some of them are less but God uses crises. He uses the consequences of our sins. And that's really what this is. This is a self-manufactured crisis, in fact. This was nothing that came upon him from without. This was self-manufactured. For myself and my conversion, it was a self-manufactured crisis that brought me to the Lord. I'm sure that's the same for many of you, isn't it? We bring upon a lot of our miseries upon ourselves. While we like to blame others and point the finger, when you really think about it, 
Most of our problems are self-manufactured. You see, sin has consequences. And sometimes those consequences aren't felt right away. Sometimes you think, I got away with it, didn't I? But the consequences, the painful consequences, can be felt years down the line. Sometimes decades down the line, you look back and say, wow, now I see what I did and I see the pain of it. And that would be Jacob for sure. (laughs) Going forward from here, there's many more chapters you'll cover and you'll see. Jacob's whole life is bound up in the consequences of his sin. It'll dog him for years to come. But the good part here is it doesn't, it doesn't make him fall away. It makes him grow stronger and depend on God even more. Now let's look at Jacob's conversion. Let's look at the, he's, he's the fugitive. We see Jacob the fugitive. Now look at Jacob the child of God. Verse 12. Well, let's go back to verse 10. And then he left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones, he put it under his head and he laid down in that place to sleep. Didn't even have a tent or a donkey or anything. He was really just out there, broke, alone. I mean, if you think about this, it's pretty frightening, isn't it? You ever watch those survival stories on Discovery? And you see people who try to go out and, and survive in the wilderness with nothing. This is, this is, this is Middle Eastern wilderness. This is, this is intense. The only thing he had was a rock to lay his head on. Look at verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring, and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Now, before I begin to really examine what's going on here, we're going to look at this dream. I want to stop, step back for a minute and, and, and ask ourselves the question, what is this idea of God speaking to people in dreams? Right. Often people come up to me and say, Bob, I, I had a dream. I had a dream. And, and it'll give me a vivid description. What's the Lord saying to me? That's a good question, isn't it? What's the Lord saying to me? Now, before I answer that question and how I answer it usually, I want us to ask ourselves, does God speak to people through dreams? Now, in the Bible, we see that it does happen quite often. In Jacob's case, God speaks to him in this dream, and later in chapter 31, he'll speak to him in another dream and tell him to go back to Canaan. Joseph has many dreams, very prophetic in nature. He interprets dreams. We know God gifted Daniel to interpret dreams. The Apostle Peter has a dream when sleeping one day about unclean and clean meats. Now, clearly, many of these um, biblical passages show us that, that God's people can have dreams. And also the book of Acts 16 and 7 through 9, 18, 9, Paul dreams and the Holy Spirit prevents him from going one area or he dreams of a man in Corinth calling to, for him to come help because he didn't want to go to Corinth. And so what does all this mean? 
Can God speak to us through dreams? Well, we all dream. It's part of our inner subconscious. However, we don't know enough about the mind to say what it is and isn't. And people respond to this differently. Some will say, disregard all your dreams. They're all foolish. They're all just your subconscious, and they shouldn't be taken seriously. Others will say, no, 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 you really need to pay attention because it's from God. You know, they sell books. You know, you can go to the Barnes & Noble and get a book, How to Interpret Dreams. And there are people who obsess on this. All right? They're two extremes. I do believe that for the most part, our dreams are meaningless. If I told you half the dreams I had this week, if I took them seriously, I would be, I'd be in a mental institution today. All right? But I do believe there are times when God can speak to us in a dream. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that. Not in the sense of bringing new revelation, okay? Not in that sense. But I believe that God, the Holy Spirit, can prompt us and warn us in different ways through dreams. Not all the time. But there are times, and if you're, you've been a Christian long enough, you know that there's been times where, where the Lord has, and I want to say it very cautiously, prompted you that way. It could have been a sin in your life. Maybe it is God working through your subconscious to bring conviction. Maybe it's to call a loved one. I don't want to get too deep here, but you know what I'm saying. Job 33, 14 through 17 says, God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it in a dream or in a vision of the night. When deep sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, he opens the ears of men, terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from man. God works in, in, in remarkable ways. I say all this to say, and, and, and I'm going to move on from this, that is not the norm and is not necessary for God to speak to us in dreams, nor does it constitute extra-biblical revelation. But we should, be, we should be sensitive, in a sense, to our dreams. There's a dream, and it's very specifically directing you in an area of sin in your life or or a warning from God, pray about that. Seek God out. Don't go buy a book about dream interpretations. Don't think that God is giving you a revelation that, you know, something to add to the Bible. But take those promptings seriously. All right. I'll push that to the side before it breeds any controversy and Caleb calls me up tonight. I'll, I'll get it from Michael afterwards. Jacob's dream is unique, though. And none of us dream like Jacob. This was a prophetic dream of the utmost sense. And God is clearly speaking to Jacob to communicate to him a very important point. He wants to communicate to him that he is indeed confirmed as the patriarch of the family. It's a self-revelation of God to Jacob, establishing him as God's chosen one. You know what's important to note here, guys? Jacob didn't seek God. God sought Jacob. And God revealed himself. Let's look at the content of the dream. First, there's a stairway. Here, Jacob sees in his dream a large stairway going from earth to heaven. Some of the older translations use the term ladder. But the Hebrew is more specifically referring to a staircase, like in a ziggurat, an ancient temple. And on this staircase were angels, and they were going up and down. They were going back and forth. There was a two-way traffic. The scene is spiritual. The angels represent, or they are, God's ministers and agents. And it represents a 
a commerce between heaven and earth, an apex, if you will. And the point of the dream is that on one end is God, and on the other end is Jacob. It demonstrates not so much a connection between heaven and earth, but a connection between God and Jacob. That's the main theme of all of this, is God. God is sovereign. God is is supremely in control of all the events in Jacob's life. He's supremely in control and the God of the covenant, Yahweh. The angels are going back and forth carrying out his will, and it falls upon Jacob to realize that he has been chosen by God and set apart by God for a very specific purpose. Although he may have been self-willed up to this point, and trying to accomplish and achieve his own gain with his own selfish plots and plans, in the end, God was ordaining every bit of it to accomplish his own will. That's the beauty of this. You know, sometimes we wonder, why does God allow people to get away with certain things? Nobody is getting away with nothing. God is using even the evil intentions of man to bring about his purpose and good. We may think we're free and autonomous in and of ourselves, but everything we're doing in the end, whatever we think we're achieving, is really achieving God's goal in the end. No one is thwarting God's plan. That's the lesson here. But what really counts is not what Jacob saw, but what he heard. That's what really counted. Don't get too caught up in the imagery. The real important thing is that God affirms the Abrahamic covenant, verse 13 and 14. When God speaks to Jacob, he confirms indeed that the apex is centered on him and the Abrahamic covenant, the land, the seed, and the nations being blessed. God is essentially establishing Jacob as the third patriarch by repeating and reiterating the promises he gave to Abraham and to Isaac. He makes a very personal promise also. Verse 15, he says, I will be with you. And I will bring you back to the land and I will see you through this. In other words, God is saying to Jacob, you are mine and I'm going to accomplish all I will through you. Don't be afraid. You're not alone. Isn't that the beauty? To know that God is with us. You know, when you know God is with you, nothing really matters, does it? No matter how difficult times get, when you know God is with you, it's okay. See, that promise for Jacob is not just for him as the patriarch, but it's for all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. In Genesis, I mean, Matthew 28, when the Lord gave the Great Commission and, and he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I instructed. And lo and behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Isn't that a promise we can take to the bank, that Jesus is with us? We're never alone. We're never alone. We may feel alone sometimes, but we're never alone. God is with us. And as difficult as life being, and even though we may reap horrible consequences for our sins, and that's what gave David joy, wasn't it? David committed a horrible sin with Bathsheba and there were terrible consequences. The rest of his life was utter misery because of it. But did it, did it take away David's joy? No, because he knew the Lord was with him. Oh, when you know the Lord is with you, it makes all the difference in the world. You read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and what does it say? All the success that Ezra was granted was because the Lord was with him. 
Later in Genesis, Joseph is in Egypt. He's sold into slavery. He's thrown in prison unfairly. But what does it say? The Lord was with him. See, God being with you doesn't mean life is all a bed of roses. It means that sometimes life can be a a garden of thorns. But if God is with you, you'll make it through okay. What a promise. What a blessing. See, at this point, God had affirmed Jacob's call. God had affirmed Jacob's salvation. He wasn't abstract, but he personally commits to Jacob. And his promise will be fulfilled. He'll go off to Haran. Good number of years. You know, at least 14 years to work for the two wives he has. And a few years at then, probably about 20 years in all. It's a long time to be away from home. And through that, he goes through a difficult period. But later, the beautiful thing is God fulfills his promise in chapter 31. He says, I will bring you back to this land. Think of some of the promises Jesus made to us. Look at John 14 for a minute. You probably know this, this, this passage by heart. But, but it's good for us to meditate on these things. Not only of the Lord being with us. But but look what he says in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Isn't that beautiful? He's not going to leave us. He's not going to abandon us. We're in this spiritual uh, uh, desert right now. We're still in this earth. Be already, not yet. We're already raised in Christ. We're new creations. We've experienced and tasted the kingdom of heaven and Christ's reign in our lives, but we're not there yet. We still live in a sin-cursed world. We're like Israel wandering in the desert waiting to get to the promised land. We're like Jacob who's going to Haran about to encounter just a, 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 a two decades of a, of a difficult life. But God says, I'll bring you back. And God is telling us today, hang in there. I keep in my promise. Where I am, you will be also. I prepared a place for you. When you have your eyes fixed on heaven, it makes life easier. When we have an eye on the big picture, oh, that's morbid to think about death. No, it's not. If you're a Christian, dying is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you, isn't it? I'm not afraid to die. Are you afraid to die? If you're afraid to die, it's because you're clinging too much to the things of this world. Your love and your heart is here and you're afraid of what you'll lose. But if Christ is your greatest treasure and your greatest joy, dying just completes that, gives you everything you desire. Death is not the end of all things. It's really the beginning. It's the completion of all things. For the believer, it's, it's our destiny. It's our goal. It's our ultimate goal. Or to be present in the body, to be absent from the Lord. But when I die, I'll be in the presence of God. I'll see him face to face. Oh, what joy. Finally, just as we see Jacob had heard this good news, we see that he's changed from a fugitive to a child of God. What is the evidence of this? How do we know that that there was a transformation, a change in Jacob? 
And I believe for the first time in his life, Jacob knows the Lord. Yes, he grew up hearing about the Lord. Yeah, he, he, he sacrificed and worshipped to his father. He heard all the stories of Abraham. He probably heard the story how his dad went up to Mount Moriah and almost got sacrificed. But I think for the first time in Jacob's life, the Lord was real to him. And some of you younger people know that. You grew up in a Christian home. You heard the gospel. You heard about Jesus. You heard about the Lord all your life. But it isn't until you have a personal experience where it becomes real to you. And that is what happens to Jacob here. It was personal. It was real. And a transformation had begun. And we see the evidence of this. How? Well, let's look. Verse uh, 17 or verse 16, around, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He's recognizing the presence of God. But what's important, not so much he recognized it, but look at verse 17. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The key word there is afraid. You see, when you come to understand who God is, the gravity, the immensity, the weight of a holy, righteous God. It shatters you. It breaks you. You don't walk away and say, Jesus is my buddy. There's something that just terrifies you to know that there is an all Holy God, who is a consuming fire, who has just revealed himself to you. Now, we do not have the revelations like Jacob had. But when we come to faith in Christ, God reveals himself to us. How? Through the word of God, through the preaching of the word. And when the word of God exposes who God is and brings to light the magnitude of who God is, and in contrast with that, the wretched sinfulness of who we are, there is a sense of intrepidation and godly reverence and awe and fear that must overwhelm us. And that is, may I make clear, that is the evidence of anyone who's been truly converted. I would say if you've never experienced that in your life, I can't say this with, well, yes, I can, but See, God reveals himself to us in different ways. But I, if you've never experienced that, I don't know if you've ever truly sensed the presence of the Lord or have come to know him. How could you come to know the Lord and not know the terrible, awesome weight of his presence? Because that'll change you. You see, up to this point, Jacob was a self-willed man. You know what? When people don't fear God, you know how they live? They live for themselves. I'll do what I want. I'll do what I feel. Right? There's no God. John MacArthur often says a lot of people are practical atheists. They say there's a God, but they live like there's no God. Isn't that many people? Practical atheists. But when you know there is a God in heaven who sees all and knows all, I'm studying the attributes of God with my daughters right now. It's terrifying them that God is omniscient. They were blown away by that the other day. It should be terrifying. We should think of those verses where, where Jesus says that every, every uh, idle word that you utter will be held against you on Judgment Day. Whatever you said in secret will be, will be preached from the rooftops. God knows all and sees all. There's nothing hidden from his sight. You know how we know that, that he was a changed man? 
At this point, he was driven by the fear of his brother, Esau. Now he's being driven by the fear of God. And that's really what we need to learn. Don't fear man. Man can do nothing to you. They can kill your body. But fear God who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. Fearing God is a good thing. I, I think, I really truly believe as Christians, we've lost a sense of the gravity of who Jesus is, of who God is. You see, when we lose a sense of the gravity of who God is, we take him lightly. Fearing God is a good thing. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That same phrase, consuming fire, is the same phrase used to describe Yahweh in Deuteronomy. The same God of the Old Testament revealed himself in a stormy cloud and fiery pillar. It's the same God today, yesterday, today, and forever. God changes not. God's disposition to us is gracious, but that doesn't mean we fear him any less. If anything, the fact that God's disposition is gracious, which it always was, but more so under the covenant of grace, under the covenant of of the new covenant uh, uh, of the gospel, Hebrews makes it very clear. We still fear God. We still approach him with reverence and awe. Secondly, we see that Jacob responds through worship. When the morning came, he took the stone he used as a pillow, erected it as a pillar to commemorate the site as a holy site. This was common in those days. The interesting thing is he doesn't build an altar yet. He builds a pillar which later will be forbidden in the law of Moses. But, but it's a sign of worship. It's a sign of a sense he's commemorating this as a sacred spot. He's anointing it with oil to recognize that this is not ordinary. This was not an ordinary experience. This was not an ordinary place. And it shouldn't be profaned. It should be set apart and, and treated as sacred. And then he makes a covenant with his lips. He makes a covenant with his lips in verse 20. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and I will give and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again into my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and the stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house and all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. What does that mean? Now, some would argue here the fact that Jacob covenanted to give a tithe to the Lord is evidence that the tithe predates the Mosaic covenant and therefore is the standard of giving even for us in the New Testament. Is that what it's saying? No. I would argue no. I believe that under the new covenant, we're called to give sacrificially, to give liberally, not by some rigid 10% number, but to give as much as we can till it hurts. Why? Well, it's the same reason why Jacob vowed to give God a tenth. God has showed grace and mercy to him in such an enormous way. He showed favor to Jacob. I mean, just think of the guilt, the weight, the shame that he felt. And yet, he, he, he probably believed in his own heart he should have been cast off from the Holy Family. And instead, God confirms him in spite of his wickedness and his sin. And Jacob could only be moved to give back to God 
sacrificially. That's what worship is. You see, it's not about 10%, 20%, 5%. It's about sacrificial giving because that's what worship is. This is corporate worship. Yes, it's worship in a sense. We come here, we sing, we give our attention to the word of God. But does worship end when the service ends and however many minutes are left? Is that the end of worship for us as Christians? Of course not. John Ford tells us those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. Worship is a lifestyle. It's, 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 a, it's who we are as beings where we, you know, Romans chapter 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. You see, in the Old Testament, you went to worship God. Well, what did you do? You brought, you brought the best of your herd. You brought the best of your goat, the best of your sheep. And you didn't give them God the sheep. You gave them the best and you brought it to the altar and you, you sacrificed. You killed that animal as an offering to God. And that's what worship is. Worship is the giving of ourselves, the giving of our resources, the giving of our time for God and His glory. And why not? Has God not shown us so much favor and grace? What has God withheld from you this day? Hey, some of you are sitting here, well, you know, I haven't gotten a job I wanted yet, or you're single, so I haven't gotten that. I haven't found them, you know, my husband or wife yet, or, you know, I, I'm not quite happy with my home. You've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. What you should be thinking is if God has given you Christ, he's given you everything. In Romans 8.32, it tells us, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What more can God give you than his son? Which one of us would willingly give our child to death for the sake of someone else? And not just for a good person, but for criminals. Because that's what we are. We are criminals. God spared. He gave his only son. He did not spare him. Will he not give us everything we need? You know what? If you don't have the spouse you're looking for, the home you want, or, or the, the job you're looking for, guess what? You don't need it. Because if you need it, God would give it to you already. What you need more than anything is to recognize, to recognize your need to worship God more liberally and graciously and sacrificially. Give of yourself. Don't look at Jacob and say, well, I'm going to make a commitment from this point forward to give 10%. That's good. Don't let that be the limit. Give of yourself, your time, your energy, your resources to God abundantly for his glory. And do it through missions. Do it through evangelism because that's really what worship is. Bringing others to Christ that they may worship him and give to him and glorify him. Amen? Well, let me conclude. This was just the beginning of Jacob's spiritual journey. He's young in the faith, but there's evidence of grace. It wasn't until years later, after many trials in Haran, that that Jacob receives another dream. He returns to Canaan. He erects an altar at Bethel and worships God. This is Jacob's wilderness journey. But when he returns, God will use all those trials to to refine him, to fulfill his role as a patriarch. Through it all, he would always remember the words he heard that night. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go. 
In looking at Jacob's conversion, there are three points I want you to take home today in parallel to your own experience. Number one is that you can't come to Christ until you recognize how desperate your situation is. Like Jacob, we're all fugitives, fugitives from God. We're criminals in the courtroom of God. People say that God, people are, well, you hear people preach that, that men are seeking the Lord. No, men are not seeking God. Men are running from God. We're running as fast and far as we can. People hate God. People don't want to know about God because the idea that God is sovereign and just and on the throne is, is, is terrifying to people, and they want, to, they want to block it out. They want to, like Adam in the garden who hid from God, human beings hide from the Lord. We're all fugitives. We're all criminals. And apart from the grace of God, apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, we all are guilty before the Lord and worthy of eternal judgment and death forever in hell. That is the penalty for our sins, and we deserve it. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That means you worked hard for your wages, and you're going to get exactly what's coming to you. Eternal death. No one will be cheated on Judgment Day. You will get yours. Secondly, God reveals himself in a dream to Jacob, bringing about his conversion. God has revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you will, in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 43, shows us that this dream that Jacob had was was more than just an affirmation of his patriarchal position, but it was pointing to Jesus Christ. In John 1.43, it says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, said to him, Follow me, and Philip was from Bethsaida. I'm going I'm to go down a little. I'm going to look at Nathaniel's call. Verse 40, Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of God. Jesus is the apex between heaven and earth. If you want to get to God, you go through Jesus. There's no other way. That staircase in heaven where the traffic of angels go both ways shows us that that is pointing to Christ. He is, the, he is the stairway. He is the way to heaven. He is the one in whom has paved the way and has bridged the gap between heaven and earth. And if you want to have a restored relationship with God, because that's been broken through sin, sin separates us from God. If you want to have be restored and be reconciled to God, that could only be done through Jesus Christ. I don't care how good of a Buddhist you are, how good of a Hindu you are, how good of a Catholic you are, it won't work. It is only through faith and faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, that you will enter the kingdom of heaven. Good works don't get you to heaven. Faith in Christ alone. And thirdly, when we come to Christ, conversion will bear evidence And we should look like Jacob. We should be people who fear God, who worship God, and give to God. And finally, the real, the real person, the real point of this whole story that we cannot overlook and not ignore is to be simply overwhelmed by the sovereignty of God. In spite of the fact that Jacob was far from qualified from being the next in line, God's sovereign choice overrode that. Jacob 
was God's choice from the beginning. He wasn't the man he needed to be at the time, but God was going to shape him and mold him into the man he would become. Guys, when you come to Christ, we're far from qualified and ready to get to heaven, aren't we? We're far from fit to go to heaven. And that's why God leaves us here on earth. I believe this long journey, the trials and tribulations, the setbacks, the failures, the repentances are all designed to prepare us for heaven. We're not who we are supposed to be yet, but we will be who God wants us to be. It is by his sovereign choice that he elects us. It is by his sovereign grace that he sanctifies us. And it is by his sovereign grace that he will bring us home one day. There's nothing you could do to add to it. There's nothing you could do to diminish that. It is all of grace. I want to end with this Bible verse as as a comfort and encouragement to all of us. As a reminder that just like Jacob, we can trust in God's sovereign plan. That if he has elected you and you have come to faith in Christ, God is faithful to complete the good work that he's, compl- that he's begun in you. Romans 8.30 tells us this, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Wait a minute. We're not in heaven yet. That's the whole thing. In God's sight, it's already done. And nothing's going to change that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity to be here at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. And as we're here, Lord, we are reminded of your redeeming grace. Reminded of where we were at one time. How, like Jacob, we were self-willed, deceitful, scheming, sinful rebels. But because of your sovereign election, oh Lord, you, you called us, you, you justified us, you, you redeemed us. Thank you, Jesus. We don't deserve this such mercy. We don't deserve such grace. Thank you, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this word to our hearts. I pray that we'd ruminate on these truths And as we look upon the life of Jacob and the transformation and the work you did in his life, cultivate in us, O Lord, change us, work in our lives that we would be more and more conformed to the image of your Son. In Christ's name, amen.